listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 301. Guess what I found out yesterday? What? You know our tool that we have so that everybody can easily leave us a review? Mm -hmm. Some of those reviews are getting stuck. So the company, a big shout out to mypodcastreviews.com for putting this together. We love their service, happily pay for it. They're having some issues. So the reviews that you leave anywhere in the world in the Apple podcast tool or in a Spotify tool, we're getting some of the other tools they are stuck. And it was funny. I found some reviews left all over the world that we haven't seen yet. So if you've left us a review and you're outside of the U.S. and you didn't leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, we know there's a problem and we are supposed to get those reviews back. And when we do, we will read them on the air. So thank you for all those of you that have left a review and we haven't talked about yet. It's a issue with our technology. So we're working on it. You know what else we're working on? What? Our April mixer. Wasn't our what? March mixer amazing? Even my dad came. Yeah, it was. We haven't had this good a turnout, I think, ever. Didn't we have somebody from Zimbabwe show up? We had somebody and, from Zimbabwe. And then Ian came from Scotland. Ian came from Scotland, yeah. We had a bunch of people. It was a great time. We raised money for Red M, our, a charity of choice here in the Houston area. Great food. We had live music. We did a podcast, the Mixer Connection podcast, which by the time you hear this, go check it out. It will be in our suite of shows. And then we're, of course, in April, we're doing another one, and we're doing one every month the rest of this year. So it's Thursday, April 27th. The link's in the show note. If you're in the Houston area, come join us. If you come to the Mixer, come find us. And guess what, Paige? Huh? think we're going to do one of these things in a different country. Okay. In our favorite Canadian town of Calgary in Alberta. Oh, cool. We're working on this, so stay tuned. If you're in the Calgary area, we want a renaissance of the pro oil and gas culture. We're working with a partner of ours, and we're going to throw one hell of a mixer in Calgary this summer. So just stay tuned for that. You want to read the review? Sure. This came from your LinkedIn, Kevin Pari. Hey, Mark, I listen to your podcast every week. As a college student that wants to enter energy investment banking, I do find your podcast extremely informative and intriguing. I'd love to connect to learn more about your work. And I connected with Kevin and we're going to end up chatting. So thank you for the review. So if you don't have to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, although we love that medium, but any way you can reach out to us, leave us a review. And if we find it, if we get to it, read on the air, just like what happened with Kevin. Yeah. All right, let's get into the news stories. OPEC plus cuts in inventory declines counter growing demand concerns. Yeah, so this is a good article in oil price uh, talking about WTI prices remain basically stable, although when this cut was announced, they did spike a little bit. And they go deep into inventories and a whole bunch of other stuff. Let me tell you what's what I think's going on. So it's a couple of there's two separate things going on. One is OPEC sees this, and I see it too, in the the, the slowing down of our world's economy. Mm -hmm. So we've got to be real careful that we don't overproduce or we'll have a surplus on the market. We're seeing the same thing with the rig counts, right? The rig counts are starting to drop. Yeah. That's because the operators are seeing the same thing that I'm seeing that OPEC's seeing. We're trying to balance that. So there's one thing that's going on. The other thing that's going on that nobody talks about is this is OPEC basically taking the fingers in the middle of your hand and pointing toward our current administration uh -huh. saying, you promised us if we maintain production and try to keep prices low so that people in the U.S. and at Europe at the pump would not be raising hell, that when it came time right around late spring 
early summer, you would refill the strategic petroleum reserve and buy our oil. And our current administration has not done that. Right? Mm. So what nobody's talking about is the fact that OPEC is going, you know what? You told us you would do something on a handshake deal. Let me see what this is what happens when you don't keep your end of the bargain. We're going to spike prices. Now we're going to spike prices. We're going to make sure that prices at the pump go up. Guess what? Right about the time the next presidential election happens. And there is nothing you can do about this current administration. So one thing is they're seeing the slowdown in the world's economy. They want to make sure for their own economy they keep prices high. The other thing is they're pissed at our current administration for not. Well, I mean, who isn't really? <laughs> <laughs> and so this is going to be interesting as we get closer and closer to the U.S. presidential elections. I firmly believe that the price at the pump are going to go through the roof again, which is going to sway a lot of people to change the current administration for a new administration. So we'll keep an eye on this. But there literally is nothing. The U.S. has nothing left the strategic petroleum reserve. Not that it makes a difference. None of the other big oil producing countries are going to try to step in and help us. You know, so this is what it is. And unfortunately, the American citizens are going to have to deal with this. And our country's poor people, the ones that be hit the hardest. So let's hope. That something happens and we get production up just a little bit to keep the prices at the pump low. But I think we're going to see a huge surge at the pump in the next few months. All right. Pioneer surges 6% after informal Exxon talks. You know, anytime Exxon says, hey, we want to talk about acquiring you. (laughs) So everybody out there is talking about this. There's a bunch of analysts talking about how they think this is going to go through. In some ways, it makes a lot of sense. Exxon's cash heavy on purpose. Exxon's looking to make a major purchase. This would cement Exxon as one of the largest or as the largest operator in the Permian. Exxon knows that that's a good business decision. However, I don't think it's going to happen. Why? I think the price that Pioneer's commanding is too much. And one thing Exxon doesn't do is overpay for anything. Well, that's true. And once again, it's not like that either one of these companies call me and ask my opinion. This, this is me guessing from the outside like everybody else. I think Exxon's exploring the possibility. I don't think it's going to happen. And if it does happen, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. I just think it's they're demanding a premium. Pioneer is a fantastic operator in the Permian. Right. The best, right? It's also the largest. Exxon has the cash to make this deal happen. I just don't see it as Exxon pulling the trigger on this. I still think that Exxon is probably better off buying Denberry, which, hey, remember, I didn't say Denberry Resources. I learned it's not actually Denberry. Good job. I think that's probably a better acquisition target. And I think some of the tier two players in a permanent are a better acquisition target for Exxon. But like I said, they don't call me for my opinion. The whole market analyst experts out there think this deals could go through. So let's see who's right, them or me. Okay. Sweden issues Nord Stream probe update. Yeah. So if you read through this, basically, they say, we've figured out who did this, but we're still not going to tell, which drives me freaking crazy. So why would they update us? Because there's some new information. One is a lot of stuff that they thought were happened have now been proven, although they mm. won't freaking tell us what it is. And then you have this Seymour Hirsch, who's actually a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, is still saying that the U.S. orchestrated this with the help from the Norwegian Navy, that what really happened is Russian troops massed on the border with Ukraine and warfare was coming, President Joe Biden saw the pipeline as a vehicle for Vladimir Putin to weaponize natural gas. And so President Biden ordered sabotage, which was executed with cooperation of the Norwegian Navy. And they hit all this through some NATO exercise that are going on in that part of the world during that time. I don't believe this whatsoever. Like I said earlier, if the U.S. wanted to – the first thing, there's no reason for the U.S. to sabotage this. 
by sabotaging this pipeline, we hurt our European allies, right? Right. Tremendously. Yeah. Hurt them from the ability to back us up during a war. Right. Right. Yeah. The second thing is, regardless of what you think of our current administration, our military and our intelligence community are some of the best in the world. And if they wanted to sabotage this pipeline, it would not have been as obvious as three sonic signatures of explosions that were recorded from multiple recording sites. There's just no way we would have been caught. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I still think this is – honestly, I think Russia did this in their own pipeline, which everybody thinks I'm crazy. Let's see if we can find out. The good thing about this is that it looks like the Swedish prosecution authority now has all the facts they need. They are saying that whoever did this is not an ally of Sweden, and we are an ally to Sweden. So So that eliminates us. Yeah, but this is still a mess. The other thing that's happened is that – President Putin has asked the UN to do their own investigation, not a Russian investigation, but the United Nations do investigations. And the US and the United Nations said no. The United Nations Security Council rejected Russia's request for a probe of this, which then tells me that the United Nations knows the same thing the Swedish do. So between the United Nations and Swedish, somebody will leak this. Like there's no way this is gonna be secret forever. So I'm gonna keep an eye on this. I am really curious who did it. You know, I say Russia did it. I'm gonna say that with about a 50.5% feasibility, and I think 49.5% that it was environmental activist group. So we'll keep an eye on this. I do wish they would just tell us who did it. If it was the U.S. that did this, I am pretty sure Sweden would say something. And if they didn't want to say anything, they wouldn't have put out this update. It strikes me as marketing more than anything else. So this is one of those things we'll keep an eye on. But I what are they trying to market, though? So one of the things that happens in our always-on society is that the population here and in Europe quickly forget about important things that happen in the world, right? You go mm-hmm. into the next thing. And one of the things you could look at this as a way to keep it up front in everybody's attention so that if one of the huge governments, so U.S. or Europe, want to do some further sanctions against Russia, mm. people will remember this, right, and maybe help sway their opinion on doing stuff. If they don't keep this front of mind, in a couple of weeks, everybody forget that this happens. It's just the always-on world that we're in. Okay. All right. So next one, energy groups react to H.R. 1 bill. It's a fantastic bill. It's trying to lower the cost of energy for the U.S. consumer and also U.S. businesses. It's promoting renewables in a way that makes total fiscal sense. It's passed the House. It's not going to pass the Senate and the president's not going to sign it. Now I say that, I was completely long around about the Alaska Willow Project, right? Yeah. It would be my luck that this passes the Senate and President Biden decides this, which means I'm completely wrong. But I don't see it happening. This is legislation that makes sense. This is legislation that makes sure we rein in things like methane emissions, that we speed up the permitting process, both for oil and gas wells and things like wind farms and solar. It unlocks a lot of our domestic energy production, which just helps with our own national security. And it would lower cost and emissions across the board. And you have a lot of Democrats joining their fellow Republicans. And in the House, they pass this. Like I said, has to get through the Senate, which the Democrats control, and President Biden has to sign it into law, and I just don't think it's going to happen. I wish it would, and I would love to be wrong on this. This is those things I would love to be wrong on. So you know, let's keep an eye on this. Now, we're headed toward elections, and if you look at this from a political point of view, if I was the current administration, I'd be looking really hard at signing this to show that I'm willing to work with the Republicans on energy bills to try to keep from alienating those voters, right? Yeah. So that's, you know, and quite honestly, if they did this politically, just so they could try to stay in office, I don't care. It'd be a great thing to pass. Yeah, absolutely. China and Russia look to challenge the petrodollar. You know, normally this is when I'd go, do it. I dare you. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Try it. 
page. You know, so the U.S. is the strongest economy in the world. We do about $4 trillion, That's with a T, $4 trillion worth of business every single day. The U.S. dollar has been the currency of choice since I think the late 60s, early 70s for petroleum transactions. So that basically means anytime you sell hydrocarbons in the world, it's either sold in American dollars or if it's not because of local currency laws, it's quickly converted to American dollars because we have the most stable currency on the planet. This is smart by China. So I firmly can believe that instead of China trying to take on the West in modern warfare, I think China is trying to take on the West in economic growth. And I think they're trying to position themselves as the Amazon of the world uh -huh. right? so that not only do they manufacture everything, but everything gets transported into and out of China, raw materials, finished goods, yeah. that they control most of the trade. And at some point, their currency would be the currency of choice for trade, including hydrocarbons or petroleum products. Right now, it's I believe if I remember, it's only about maybe 3% of all the petroleum transactions that are taking place are taking place in the Chinese yen, the currency. And I think the U.S. is around 65 or 70%. Uh -huh. So the odds of them catching up in, in the very near future are slim. But if they keep buying and importing large quantities of crude oil and paying for it in the yen. And if they keep increasing their global trade, they could grow that percentage. And at some point, maybe they could challenge. Now, the problem with that, and I know I'm going to have some economists come at me and give me some hate mail because I'll make this simplified. Our currency used to be based upon precious metals. In fact, somewhere in this room, I have a silver certificate. I have a dollar bill that instead of saying, in God we trust, it says payable in silver to bear upon demand. Not that long ago in this country, you could take that dollar bill and go to the U.S. Mint. And by law, you could trade that dollar for a dollar's worth of silver. They had to give you that silver. So our currency was backed by precious metals. That's what made it worthwhile. At some point, our economy grew so big that it was physically impossible for us to have enough gold and silver in Fort Knox. Like literally, right. it just couldn't happen. And we moved over into faith. So that's where the in God we trust came from. So people believed in our currency, and that's what kept its value. At some point, as religious beliefs started to wane, we needed other ways to prop up a dollar. And so even though on the U.S. dollars, it still says in God we trust, it's really based upon the petroleum economy. The fact that the U.S. has such a strong economy that our dollar's value is tied to the strength of that economy, especially dealing with hydrocarbons. So, you know, if you look out to the future, another 50 or 100 years, if China keeps making itself the trading and economic power that it wants to be, and they're cooperating with Russia, who's one of the biggest hydrocarbon producers in the world. And they're part of BRIC, Brazil, India, and China, which is a trade group that's not pro-OPEC, which is also not pro-NATO. It's their own, they're setting their own trade group. Maybe somewhere down the road that we lose the U.S. dollar being the currency of choice for petroleum. And at that point, our U.S. dollar won't have the stability that it has. I was about have, to ask. Yeah. We're going to have crazy inflation and deflation and everything else. I hope that doesn't happen. I can see it happen. Not, I mean, not probably not in my lifetime, but I can see it happen unless the U.S. changes course. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this a little bit later. But one of the things that the U.S. has done that I can't believe I'm about to say this is they've used sanctions around hydrocarbons to try to control what other countries do, right? Mm. And in a lot of ways, that's better than all-out warfare, right? That you're making countries hurt without killing people. Paige, I'm starting to wonder with the way the world's going, if maybe the U.S. have done too much of that. Like, maybe we shouldn't sanction everybody and everything. Maybe sometime we should send the Marines over and kick a little butt. You know, it keeps us from losing the power we have with our economy. Not in this administration. <laughs> well, not in this administration, yeah. Anyway, and I'm not saying that we need to go to war with anything, but this whole article is about China and Russia looking to challenge the petrodollar. They can't do it now. I can see it in the realm of possibilities in the future. 
All right, let's move on to the next one. API, NEPA guidance is halting U.S. energy development. So NEPA, National Environmental Policy Act, is basically the EPA's way to enforce things. I dug into this article, and this is about a lot of rules and regulations for getting permits around greenhouse gases. Paige, you want me to tell you what the shortest amount of time is to get this permitting process through NEPA? Hmm. Four years. <laughs> like, that's the shortest amount of time. Four years. So if you're trying to build some type of facility, don't just think only gas facility. Think solar, wind, nuclear. Well, that kind of goes back to all those permits I was talking about last week. Yeah. So if you're trying to build something in some reasonable time frame and you have investors that are investing in your project, which is how these projects are built, they're not built on, you know, unicorn fortins, fairy tiers. You have investors that are investing money that want to return on that investment. If it takes you at the minimum four years just to get through the NEPA permitting process, that is insane. And so what they're trying to do is speed this up. And this is API American Petroleum Institute saying the NEPA guidelines is literally holding back U.S. energy development. And once again, not just hydrocarbons, but wind, solar, nuclear, geothermal. And this is part of our current administration's trying to tie energy infrastructure development into political views on greenhouse gases. And they're enforcing this with this NEPA. So this just needs to go away. This is not helping anybody. It's not helping the renewable side of our industry. It's not helping the American consumers. You know, if you're in the oil and gas industry, you want to build a new refinery, and it's going to take you four years before you even get this one permit, not on top of the other 300,000 permits you need, you're going to go somewhere else. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. That's unfortunate. Europe's rush to LNG could turn into world's most expensive and unnecessary insurance policy. So this is a really good article that I had to read through and think about it for a second. So basically, this article is saying that because of the shortage in energy in Europe and because LNG is a quick solution, more or less, to that shortage and the fact that the whole world other than Russia would like to see Europe get away from buying Russian gas for political geopolitical reasons and that Europe is dumping money into building facilities so they can import liquefied natural gas. And what this article is saying is that there's so much pressure going on for this that they're going to overbuild capacity. So Europe needs about... 270 300 BCM each year of, of liquefied natural gas to feed gas to its constituents, its business, everything else. Mm-hmm. And they're saying by this rush, we're going to end up building, or their, Europe's going to end up building over 400 billion cubic meters by 2030 of capacity. That is really cool. And so, this what this article is trying to do is make you think that these projects are wasting money, that we don't need all this capacity. What they're really worried about is not this. They're worried about the fact that we're going to make liquefied natural gas so cheap in Europe that the renewables are going to fail. Mm. So this is a veiled attempt at uh. trying to prop up the renewable industry to make sure that liquefied natural gas isn't cost effective. So right now, because of the constraints of infrastructure, there's not enough import terminals, right? That's one part of the infrastructure you need. We talked earlier about Germany building the largest LNG import terminal ever in the history of mankind. But after you import this LNG, which is a very cold liquid of natural gas, you have to, once you import it, you have to regasify it and put it into the gas system, right? Right. And so right now that's not happening because the infrastructure is not there, which makes renewable energy cost competitive with natural gas. Once you remove those constraints and you can feed Europe as much natural gas as they can take, natural gas could drop to pennies on the dollar compared to renewables and it's going to put the renewables out of business. So what this article really is about, because it comes with IEEFA, which is a very pro-renewable U.S. think tank, 
is they're trying to scare Europeans and that you're spending too much money in infrastructure. And the truth is this infrastructure is going to make renewables have to compete with liquefied natural gas and they're not going to be able to, right? It's sort of like, remember the Keystone pipeline to bring that heavy complex Canadian crew down here to the Gulf coast, mm-hmm. right? What would have happened instead of our political administration killing that project if they would have doubled it or tripled it? Yeah. How much cheaper would it be to get that crude here, right? Right. That's what's going on here. And it took me a while to figure it out. You know, it's a damn shame when politics invade journalism to the point that the entire articles are written in a such a way to make you think one way without understanding what's really going on. So this is Well, if they would just implement four year permitting processes, that would probably hinder it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they take, shh, you should have said that. My bad. <laughs> Harbor Energy to cut 350 onshore jobs due to windfall tax. We saw this coming. You did see this one coming. Hey, Europe, it's a stupid freaking idea to have windfall taxes, right? You're, <laughs> you're going to kill the North Sea business. And guess what? You need that North Sea natural gas and oil. And here's a company that is booming. Their margins are killing it. And yet they're going to have to lay off 350 employees because of the windfall tax. And all this is going to do is drive business out of Europe, drive business out of the North Sea. You know, this is ridiculous. And I last time I checked, it was a very high number of North Sea oil and gas operators have cut their spending because of this windfall tax. I think it's around 90% of all the operators in the North Sea have cut their CapEx spending because they're going to lose money. So stupid idea. It's going to drive horrible outcomes, and you did it to yourself, so figure it out. Mm-hmm. Okay. ExxonMobil outlines its lower carbon future. I guess this is the ExxonMobil show. It wasn't meant to be. <laughs> to be fair, I did half and he did half. So there's a part of me that is I know dying laughing inside. Like think of the sideways crying, dying laughing emoji, right? Laughing my butt off, rolling on the floor, right? Mm-hmm. That's what's going on here. So all the people that like to vitalize ExxonMobil, guess what? Your low carbon future is going to depend on ExxonMobil. Well, that figures. Yep. Your low carbon future, the money that you spend to make sure you have low carbon is going to go to ExxonMobil's pocketbooks and their shareholders, which I am one, so I appreciate this. One of the things I thought was really interesting, this, and I've been reading about this for a while, is their CEO, Darren Woods, said somewhere in the future, and I can't remember where, I think it's 30 years now, he thinks their low-carbon business will be equal in profitability to their hydrocarbon business. Imagine that. They're going to make as much money from uh, dealing with carbon dioxide, especially pulling it out the air, pull it out of refineries, and then using it commercially and selling it as their hydrocarbon business. I love this. This is what the environmentalists don't want. And if you talk to them about this, they say, number one, that this carbon capture storage doesn't work. Yeah, it does. I'm sorry, it does. It's not commercially viable yet, but neither is renewables in a lot of places. Number two, what really aggravates them is this keeps fossil fuel companies in the limelight. Well, I'm sorry, we are in the limelight. We make the world happen, right? And if the world wants a lower carbon future, we're going to give it to you and you're going to pay for it. So, and this Exxon also talks about their hydrogen efforts, their carbon capture and storage. But, you know, no matter what you think, even ExxonMobil has cutting their own emission goals. So they're looking to reduce their scope one and scope two from around 20 to 30% in the next couple of years. So I don't care what you say about ExxonMobil. I love this company. Obviously, I love this company. Clearly. Yeah. But I just think this is amazing. I'm telling you, in my head, I am laughing my butt off at all the anti-fossil fuel organizations out there that want Exxon to die and go away. I'm sorry. It's not going to happen. All right. On to not Exxon. (laughs) (laughs) Mountain Valley clears permit hurdle for 303-mile pipeline project in Virginia. Hey, Sierra Club. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's me, the guy you don't want to talk to, right? <laughs> Try to get you on the balance point 100 times. That little uh, state water board thing that you did in Virginia, guess what? It's not going to work. It's not going to happen. This pipeline's going through. We know how to build pipelines. We know how to build pipelines environmentally responsibly. We know how to build pipelines environmentally sensitive areas so it don't impact the wildlife. The Fourth Court of Appeals said Virginia's Department of Environmental Quality went back and conducted another survey because of Sierra Club after <laughs> doing the first three surveys reviews. And it says, you know what? We are crazy, Sierra Club. You're trying to use the Clean Water Act to stop this thing from going through. And quite frankly, this is one of the cleanest ways to move anything. So the Fourth Circuit judge rejected all the claims from the Sierra Club. <laughs> Sorry, another laughing emoji. And said that the Mountain Valley Pipeline Group looked at thousands of alternative pathways and took into account thousands of public comments on the pipeline's impact before they decided to ask for the permit. And they took all the comments and the different alternative pathways under consideration and found the least environmental impact way to route this pipeline. So Sierra Club, what you should do is give them props for doing the right thing and making the least environmental impact for this pipeline. Instead, you're going to fight it and waste our time, waste our money. Yep. This is a win for Mountain Valley Pipeline, and I love it. And people, I'm an environmentalist. I really am. But there are groups out there that no matter what, just want the fossil fuel industry to disappear, and they use in environmentalism as a way to try to make that happen. And that's just wrong. We need to protect our environmental resources. Well, even if we were to disappear, which can't happen, who are they going to go after next? Yeah. So I'm telling you, you know? actually, that's not a story for this show. We'll say it for Jordan's show. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> Mountain Valley clears the permit hurdle for this 303-mile pipeline project in Virginia, and I just think it's awesome. Suck it. <laughs> <laughs> Aramco JV Hapco to commence construction of refinery and petrochemical complex. How many times have you heard me said that if we keep pushing the American and the European oil and gas companies to pay more taxes, to meet more regulations, to do things that don't make fiscal sense, you're going to push that industry outside of the U.S. and Europe. In this episode, like three times, I think you've said that. And that's what's going on right here. I'm glad that the residents in this part of China are going to get the jobs, both the construction jobs, the operation jobs. I'm glad that Aramco is doing a joint venture. They're pumping capital and engineering expertise into this petrochemical complex. I'm glad that construction will start It's start the second quarter of this year. So actually, it's right around the corner. I'm glad this will end up supplying over 200,000 barrels per day of feedstock. They'll go to the complex and another you know, 300 barrels per day of output for the world for petrochemicals, fuels, and everything. This should be here or yep. this should be in Aberdeen, right? Or this should be in, you know, somewhere. And it's here in China because this is crazy to say this because right now in the world, the Chinese geopolitical risk is less than the geopolitical risk of building facilities here in the U.S. or in Europe. It's crazy, but it's happening. And this is what the future is going to bring if we don't change things. I'm happy for China, like I said, for these jobs and for Ramco for expanding their footprint. You'll see more of this stuff going on. I just wish it was happening here. All right. Yeah, pretty much. All right. Here's the last article. Most oil workers say managers seem stressed. I was going to pick this. I'm glad you did. Yeah. So what's interesting about this. So this can be a very stressful industry. You're literally dealing with people's lives and the health of companies if you make some type of mistake. What's interesting about this is the amount of stress reported by managers has went up. As a state level, hasn't went down. And let's let's be real clear here. This is actually a right smack in what the work we do with Modal Point. So the Modal Point, when we look at the people's hierarchy, we have frontline workers. That's the people that do the work. 
We have manager of the frontline workers, and then we have managers of managers and then executives. So in this report, they're talking about the managers of frontline workers. And the amount of uh, frontline management who are feeling stress has went up over 30%. So now over 61% of managers within the oil and gas industry report they're stressing and that they're doing more work, working more hours with less time off. And they're having to do it with less resources. And so when you stretch managers thin, they can usually hold it together. Yeah. In this industry, you know, we can be some tough son of a bitch, right? Yeah. Right? And we can put up with long nights and no vacations and everything else, but you can't do that forever. And then it's also not fair to the frontline employees who then don't get the management they need because their managers are stretched too thin. And my fear page is, that we're, and please, I hope I'm wrong about this, is we start seeing more lost time incidents because of stuff like this. There's not good supervision. There's not good training because managers are stretched too thin. Employees then will do things because they don't have the experience. And unfortunately, I think that's going to lead to more injuries and, and I hope not deaths, but it's, it's more injuries. So this is something we're keeping an eye on. It's something that's really important in this industry. It's happening. It's just now getting to the point where people are starting to talk about it. And it's actually so important that we're launching a mental health podcast on this network to see if we can help some of this. But this is not going in the right direction. And I don't know what the solution is. To be able to give these people more resources would fix a lot of this, but we don't have more resources to give them. And we're doing this at a time when the energy, when the world's in energy shortage and we have to produce. Yeah. So, or, or there's windfall tax and you have to let go of, you know, yeah. 250 employees. And so, you know, people are, you know, working lean. You know, Paige, that's a good point. And one of these organizations and these governments that don't like our industry even think about the mental stress they add to the employees in this industry, you know, when they do stuff like that to the right. windfall tax. So we're going to keep an eye on this. This is one of those things, unfortunately, I think this could be a long-term trend. It's also be one of those things I think it's going to hurt retention, which we already have a problem with retention in this industry. Yep. And so OGGs could try to help this a little bit somewhere in the future. But I just wanted to bring this up because it's one of those things that aren't talked about that we need to talk about. And when things need to be talked about, that's what we do. All right, that's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. Seems kind of weird to jump from that to wanting to advertise with us. So <laughs> just, just, just go to OGGN.com pricing. And you can check out stuff you want. Also, our energy continuity conference is still going on in September. We have renamed this conference. It is now the OGGN Energy Conference. Oh, that's cool. We re- Why? We renamed it because people want to work with OGGN and they didn't realize that the Energy Continuity Conference was a joint venture with OGGN. So uh, instead of us just having a logo at the bottom, we said, you know what? If you want to work with OGGN, we're just going to change the name of the conference. And then this means each year we can pick different themes and subjects, but the name of the conference will always be the OGGN Energy Conference. That's fair. Yeah. So still the same thing. We're, we're looking at business continuity, energy continuity. The conference is in September in Pasadena, Texas. We still have plenty of exhibitor spots. We're doing things different. Paige, you ever notice that when you go to a conference or a trade show that some of the best enjoyable, valuable parts are when you're in the hallways between sessions and you run to somebody and you get to chat with them for a few minutes? Networking? Yeah, networking. So what we're doing is trying to make the whole conference like that. Okay. So with the whole conference be networking, we're not going to have paid speakers. Our exhibitors are going to be our paid speakers. They each get a 15-minute slot. We're going to help train them so they do not try to sell you anything. So if you're in the crowd, you're not going to be sold to. And every single exhibitor gets a podcast interview so that 
your time at the conference isn't just that one day. It's that people get to hear it forever. So there's a lot of stuff going on. If you want to check it out, go to- Ooh, that means more guests for me. More guests for you, yeah. So there'll be a link in the show notes. Like I said, we have exhibitor spots open. If you want an expensive way to get from a bunch of oil and gas leaders and business people, we have it for you. Like I said, this September in Pasadena, come join us. Weekly rig count, where are we? We're down four in the United States at 751. Canada's down 12 at 127. Internationally, we're up 15 at 930. Yeah, I expect in about three months, three or four months, that international numbers could start to drop. Don't want it to. I suspect it will do as, as our world economy slows down. Let's hope I'm wrong about that. What I'm not wrong about is you need to join our LinkedIn company page. I mean, like, if you want to track what we're doing and join us to all this cool stuff we're doing, the LinkedIn company page is the first place to know. So just go to LinkedIn, search for Oil and Gas Global Network, join the page, or just follow the page. All you do is click and follow the page. And then while you're out there, you've heard our first Friday Q&A, you either go to OGGN.com or Oil and Gas This Week. Just go to OGGN.com. Yeah. It's easier. Stuff comes in from both. So I know. whatever makes you happy. And you can give us a question. If we use your question on the air, you get a big shout out. And then my monthly All Against Events newsletter, for some reason, has experienced tremendous growth in the last Ooh. couple of months. Yeah, not sure why. Is it because the OTC passes? Well, no, because we haven't listed those yet. <laughs> but, but if you want a free OTC pass, you better sign up for the email. It's probably a few places you can still get those. And basically, we take all the oil and gas events, put them in your inbox once a month. Sometimes the cool stuff like free passes. We don't spam you. We don't charge anything for it. We just do it to be nice. If you want myself or any of our experts to come speak at your event, which, by the way, speak at OTC, guess what we're doing? Podcast Pavilion. Yeah, we're going to be there for four days. It's going to yeah. be the OGGN team, plus we're inviting every other oil and gas and energy podcaster. We're inviting our renewable brothers and sisters, our coal brother and sisters, anything that touches energy to come record with us. We have all the gear set up. All you have to do is show up. We're going to have a schedule where you can grab time slots to do interviews. It's going to be loads and loads of fun. And I actually think, I may be wrong with this, I actually think I have somebody that basically wants to pick up the tab and buy everybody lunch, all of the podcasters lunch. So even that makes it more fun. Big shout out to Fifth Ring, who's our sponsor for our OGGN Podcast Pavilion. Love those guys. Yay. Yep. And that's, I guess that's about it. Ready to get out of here? Mm -hmm. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com. Oh,